afternoon, everyone. And um, sorry to stop the chat, but there'll be lots of chat uh, this afternoon, I, I hope. I'm Brian. Um, on behalf of Hillhead Baptist Church, a warm welcome to the first of this year's Philosophy Cafes, now in our 11th year. Um, and some of you have been coming for all 11 years, so thank you for that. Our format will be the same as usual. Our guest speaker will introduce the topic, uh, and then we'll have a 10-minute break to top up tea and coffee. And after that, we'll come back together, and there'll be an opportunity to ask questions, to discuss, uh, to engage in conversation. And I promise, as always, that we will finish promptly at 2.30, because I know that people are going to other events or have other commitments as well. Some of you would have been here last year at our first Philosophy Cafe when Leslie Riddich brought her Blossom Tour to the Trist. You may remember that one of her key themes was the importance of the structure of land ownership in the life of the nation and in the motivation of that nation's citizens. And she did a lot of comparisons between Scotland and Norway. Land reform, as we all know, continues to be in the news, very uh, much in the news over the past few months, and heavily on the political agenda. And that's our specific theme uh, for today's cafe. Our guest today is Alistair McIntosh, a writer, academic and activist. Alistair's background in research and inquiry covers a wide range including geography, moral philosophy, psychology, finance and theology. He's a special advisor at the Centre for Human Ecology, an honorary fellow in the of the Schumacher Society, and in 2006 he was appointed the honorary position of visiting professor of human ecology at the University of Strathclyde. He's currently honorary senior research fellow and visiting professor in the College of Social Sciences at the University of Glasgow and a research fellow at the School of Divinity at New College at the University of Edinburgh. Alistair has been involved in the practical side of land reform, particularly in relation to the island of Egg, and has published reflections on the contributions of liberation theology to community empowerment in Scottish land reform. More about that later. Alistair's theme today is the land, justice and the soul. Please give a warm West End Festival welcome to Alistair McIntosh. I think I've got this roving mic on so I, can, I don't need to stand in front of the mic there. Thank you, Brian, very much for having invited me to your festival I was told to expect a very eclectic audience. It wouldn't just be people from the church here. In fact, it would be very few, perhaps, from the church. It would be a wide mix of people. My theme is the land, justice, and the soul. And I'm going to take those in reverse order. I'm going to take them in reverse order because they fit the structure of a story that I'm using quite a lot at the moment it's one of those powerful stories that seems so simple on the surface but provokes deep thought. That was told to me a few years ago by Angus Peter Campbell, the bard from South Uist. And it's a story of the garlic or the highland fool who had been heard about by the lowland king. And the lowland king wanted to make sure that he was kept properly in his place so he summoned him down to the royal court and said I have three questions 
that I am going to put to you. And of course, the Highland fool knew all about the dungeons and all the torture chambers and being hung, drawn, and quartered, and all the rest of it that might be waiting for him if he got the answers wrong. And the king said, the first question is, how many stars are in the sky? And the fool replied, my king, I am just a simple highland fool. How could I know how many stars are in the sky? You count them. Now what we have there is a difference of worldviews. The king's worldview was a framework of rationality, of logic, that it ought to be possible to count the stars in the sky. But the fool's worldview was to know that there are times when human reason has to remember that it is held nested within the mythos, within the mythological framework, within the deep poetry that holds it and gives it context. You look up at the stars and the astonishing reality is that there is something, whereas cold reason on its own would suggest that there should be nothing. Furthermore, that something is nested within a framework of space and time, inviting the consideration that outside of space of time, if you like, behind Big Bang of 14 billion years ago and the whole process of evolution of life that followed up from there relatively recently, there might be a wider framework such as theologians would call eternity. And goodness knows what happens to consciousness when you start perceiving things from the perspective of eternity. Although the study of altered or alternate states of consciousness suggests that people do have experiences in which their sense of space and time is drawn back from. And we experience what Wordsworth referred to as intimations of immortality. And so I leave you with the king's first question to the fool as being one that when it is followed through invites consideration that there is such a thing as soul. That there may be such a thing as spiritual reality. And if so, that this might have implications if as human beings we are more than just egos walking about on legs of meat. But if behind our lives there is a meaning that gives meaning to the meaning of meaning, if I can put it like that. And so the king moved to his second question. Second point I'm going to address in my reverse order. It's a question of justice. And the king puffed himself up on his throne. 
and said to the lowly fool, How much am I worth? Here was a man, as Oscar Wilde would have put it, who perhaps knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. To which the highland fool replied, quick as a flash, not more than 30 pieces of silver. And followed it up by saying, if the most precious man who ever walked on earth was sold for 30 pieces of silver, how can you be worth any more than that? And so to justice. This morning I happened to pick up a copy of the New Testament and it's primarily the Gospels that I browse every so often there and it opened at Mark 14. And the story of the humble woman whose principal possession in life was that she had great love. And she had used all her savings equivalent to a man's wages for a year to buy a jar of precious perfume with which to anoint Jesus. And the disciples were duly miffed at this carry-on, not least because according to Luke's version of the same event, it was a very erotic spirituality that was expressed. She wept and with her tears and the precious perfume massaged his feet with her hair. This was a very sensual spirituality, a profoundly tender spirituality, a spirituality like you see in the tradition of the Song of Solomon in the Hebrew Bible, where the relationship with the divine is pictured as an erotic relationship of two lovers together in full explicit detail as some of you might remember from school days when we would look out such passages in the so-called religious instruction class and wonder why not many sermons were preached on some of these points. And the thing that struck me this morning which I hadn't noticed before, you know you, you read these things many times and you don't notice things And the thing that struck me was, in Mark's version, it says, then Judas, so straight after this anointing, then Judas got up, and he went off to see the high priests and basically fixed the blood price for Jesus. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's what caused him to go and betray Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. Had those 30 pieces of silver been invested at 3% compound interest rate to be repaid in silver this day 2,000 or so years later on, 
And back in the days when I was an MBA student, I validated the calculation. At just 3%, the weight of silver required to repay the debt would be equivalent to the weight of the earth. Such is compound interest. That is why financial crash is implicit in unjust financial systems. Financial systems that award, award people not just with the value of their money, but also the value of the value of having money, otherwise known as compound interest. And we're all part of it. We're all caught up in it. But we need to understand the implications of being caught up in these structures of injustice. And then what was it that Judas did with his 30 pieces of silver? According to one of the Gospels, or was it Josephus? I forget who it but one of the traditional sources. He went out and bought a field with that money. What does that mean to be, to buying a field in that biblical context means you become a landowner because he wasn't going to go and dig it himself. He would be employing the poor. He would be renting it out. He'd be a laird. That's what Judas became in contrast with the woman who had so triggered him to do what he did. Judas became a laird. And whereas Jesus said that whenever the Gospels are taught, whenever the good news is taught, the story of this woman would be told alongside it. She would not be forgotten for her love. What happened to Judas? Judas was so inwardly empty because he had betrayed justice, he had betrayed love, that he went and hanged himself, according to the tradition. Although in the orthodox traditions it is said that even as he hanged himself, he still had in his pocket a crust from the Last Supper, opening up the possibility always of redemption in ways we do not understand. And so the problem is that if we are souls and if we live exploiting structures of injustice, we empty out the souls. We build what Jeremiah called cracked systems that can hold no water. That's a dynamic of consumerism, cracked systems that can hold no water. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. As a great English theologian put it. <laughs> and so back to the Highland King and his final question with which he was going to trump. The Highland fool. And of course the king knew how precious a sense of place, how precious the land is to any indigenous peoples, including the indigenous peoples that we all once were and still partly are. And he thought to himself, I've got him this time. And he says to the fool, It's the center 
of the world. At which the fool stamped his foot and said, right beneath my feet. part of the world that is sacred ground on which we stand at any given moment is right beneath our feet no matter where we walk. And that to me is what is so exciting about land reform in Scotland today. Because it is giving communities the opportunity to reconstitute community of place right beneath their feet where it really matters. Community of place that can hold a network, a framework of communities of interest. When you've got a Judas lording it over you, with however he got the land, whatever 30 pieces of silver he was paid to acquire that land, you cannot be an authentic community. You cannot develop an authentic life in relationship with others because it is always being mediated by a person whose sole qualification to mediate life in that community is their wealth. The lords or lairds of the land will tell us that it's not ownership that matters, it's how the land is managed that matters. And when David Johnson, the chair of the Scottish Land and Estates, what used to be called the Scottish Landowners Federation, put that point to me the other day on Scotland 2015, the TV programme with Sarah Smith, My answer to him was very simple. That if it's not ownership that matters, why is there social class of people? Because that's what it is, a tightly connected social class. Why are they so keen to hold on to it? If it's management that's so important, why don't they offer their services as employees of communities in community-owned estates and reconstitute right relationships of justice, relationships in which the soul can flourish. Two months ago, I was up on the Isle of Lewis and Harris, where I'm from, with a dozen government planners from Papua and Indonesia. They had suffered 500 years of European colonization followed by a brutal dictatorship and they still suffer many abuses of human rights as their natural resources are ripped out. They were mind-blown to see what was being achieved by the people in the Park Estate who are just acquiring their land now, by the Stornoway Trust and the North Harris Trust, where for the first time the community has been able to construct business units, each with solar panels on the roof. They've got three small wind turbines, small and yet sufficient to provide power for half the houses in Harris on a windy day. They've built a whole new village of social housing at the foot of the Cleesham. And they've even got into bed 
was a gentleman of the landowning classes, but one who understands the importance of community and who owns a piece of land in Harris, the island of Scarp, which nobody lives on and therefore nobody minds. It's not interfering with them in any way. And he has attracted an investment so that working with the community, they are now building the first distillery on Harris, which is supposedly going to employ about 14 people. I was up on Egg six weeks ago where I was involved with the land buyout and it was the first time I'd been back for three years. And it was a weird experience coming off the boat with a colleague from Edinburgh University who wanted to see what was happening on this island where 90% of their electrical power is now generated by renewables on their own community-managed grid. And what was weird was that I saw lots of semi-familiar faces, but they were all carrying babies. And this is the children of, the, of my generation, the children coming back because they're able to get housing plots without having to pay an arm and a leg, 50 grand just for the plot, which requires you to have a whole job on minimum wage to pay the mortgage. They're able to live simple lives of fulfillment there. That's what land reform is doing. That's why land reform begins right beneath our feet. That's what happens when you restore justice that has historically gone wrong in much the same way as the biblical tradition of the Hebrew Bible recognized that in human hands, economic justice will always go wrong. Therefore, every seven and every 50 years, you have a cycle of jubilee by which on the 50-year cycle, the land is redistributed amongst the people. And of course, debts cancelled. And all of that comes out of the big picture framing of the soul. When we got egg going in the early 1990s, the problem we had was legitimatization. That people hadn't thought like this. People were frightened to think like this. People thought it was futile to think like this. We needed a sense of legitimacy, and that legitimacy, particularly for me and Tom Forsyth, who was the founder of the original Isle of Egg Trust, that came primarily from the spiritual people on the island. Came primarily, in the case of that island, from the old Catholic, or the older generation of Catholic people on the island. Things like an old woman, Dolly, who came up to me, and said, just help us to get rid of that man, meaning the laird. But even more important than that, people who are holding the future of the island at a level of prayer. And with Michael Northcott, who's the professor of Christian ethics at Edinburgh, who I took up there the other day, we went to the wee church service, a wee ecumenical service in the Catholic church on the Sunday, and afterwards spoke to some of these people. And a key person for me always, Mary McKinnon, or Mary Kirk, as she used to be called, just told the story of how a way, way back, when things were just dying on egg, she'd been over to Skye, and she said to the people there, how did you reconstitute your church? And they said, well, we prayed to our local saint. And she came back, and for eight years, she prayed to St. Donan. Now, I'm not a Catholic. You know, to me, that's not quite part of my worldview. And yet there was such a spiritual power in this woman. 
And I'm thinking as she's telling this story, and I'm thinking there was something that was going on in her that rubbed off on me, touched me, and that helped me to carry things for the time that I was carrying them in the early 1990s till I was able to pass it on to others. That was part of the chain. And so soul, I would say not just makes a difference, but is of the essence. Right beneath my feet. Not more than 30 pieces of silver. You can only quantify things so far. And you count them. We live in a context of life that is cosmologically constellated beyond even space and time. That's what land reform is about, folks. It's a cosmic agenda. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alistair. I expect lots of conversation, but now's an opportunity to top up teas and coffees. There's, there's uh, croissant and um, uh, scones and grapes and things still here as well. So please help yourself, and uh, we'll come back together in about 10 minutes for conversation. <laughs> <laughs>